the theme of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God. The Apostle Paul is going to demonstrate how on the basis of faith a righteous God can impart his righteousness which is necessary to have a relationship with him and to be able to go to heaven. How a righteous God can impart his righteousness to unrighteous sinners through the work of Jesus Christ. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We begin today a new study in a New Testament book of the Bible, the book of Romans. Romans has been called the profoundest book in existence. James Montgomery Boyce said that Christianity has been the most powerful transforming force in human history, and the book of Romans is the basic, most comprehensive statement of true Christianity. And so we begin our journey today on the Roman Road. By way of introduction, Dr. Brogy will give some background on the writing of this letter and its author, the Apostle Paul. Would you take your Bibles, please, this morning and turn to the book of Romans. We're going to begin a brand new study on one of the most challenging, mind-stretching, life-changing books in all of the New Testament. I've been anticipating our study of Romans for some months now. I'm not sure how long it will take us to go through this letter. We could easily spend two or three years here, but I feel confident we'll be here at least a year, and then a year's time will only scratch the surface. Donald Gray Barnhouse, one of the great expositors of the 10th Presbyterian Church in the 1940s, spent eight years preaching the book of Romans. However, by his own admission, he was really preaching the entire Bible, simply using Romans as the springboard. But let me say this will be by no means an easy or entertaining study. I know no book in all of the Bible that is more exacting, more demanding, more intensive, and more challenging than the book of Romans. Now when I say that, sometimes people say, well, what about the book of Revelation? At least for me, the book of Revelation is not half as complicated as the book of Romans. In fact, some of the greatest Christians in the history of the church viewed Romans as the greatest book in all of the Bible. John Chrysostom, a fourth century expositor of God's Word, from which we have one of the earliest commentaries remaining on the book of Romans, said it was the cathedral of Christianity. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther said, the epistle to the Romans is the true masterpiece of the New Testament and the very purest gospel which is well worth in deserving that a Christian man should not only learn it by heart, word for word, but also that he should daily deal with it as the daily bread of men's souls. Luther thought that Romans was so important that we ought to memorize it word for word. I'm going to check next week and see how many of you have done that. John Calvin. He said, if we gain a true understanding into this epistle, we will have an open door into the most profound treasures of Scripture. William Tyndale, the father of the English Bible, described Romans as, quote, the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament, the most pure gospel, and also a light and a way into the whole of Scripture. We studied Tyndale in our Wednesday night series on Bibliology, and we saw that he was the very first one to give us an English Bible based on the Greek New Testament. And Tyndale said of Romans, the more it is studied, the easier it is, and the more it is chewed, the more pleasant it becomes. 
And he was correct. It, it opens the way into the whole of Scripture. I've told you many times, if there's three books in the Bible that you can truly embrace and understand and study, Genesis, Acts, and Romans, the whole of the Bible will be open to you. Is it any wonder that these men were so excited about the book of Romans? And many notable Christian leaders were converted through their study of Romans. St. Augustine, who is a slave for the early decades of his life to his own sexual passions, at the age of 32 in the year 386, began to read the book of Romans and he was gloriously converted. John Calvin, the father of Reformed and Presbyterian theology, originally a student to prepare for the priesthood in the Roman Catholic Church was transformed when studying the book of Romans. Martin Luther, who many of you know, led the Protestant Reformation, which was nothing really more than a return to the plan of salvation that the organized church had strayed from. It was through his reading of Romans that his life was changed. He testified later, I was a good monk. If ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. <laughs> But Luther experienced that inner conflict, that guilt, and he knew that all of his monkery, all of his works could not satisfy the need for forgiveness. But when studying Romans, and he met God in all of his grace, he was wondrously converted. Some 200 years later, a man by the name of John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, was reading Luther's or hearing Luther's commentary on the book of Romans, and he was converted. He and his brother Charles founded a club in Oxford that was nicknamed the Holy Club. And together they were engaged in public and private good works, thinking that somehow those things could save them. Then he came to Savannah, Georgia in 1735 to convert the Indians. But before he left England, he wrote in his journal, I go to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? On that ship, they met a violent storm in which he feared for his life. But he noticed a, a group of Moravian, German Moravian Christians who were on their way to also preach to the American Indians, and they weren't afraid at all. They sang very calmly. And when the trip ended, Wesley asked the Moravian leader about his own serenity, and the Moravian e leader asked Wesley, do you, John Wesley, have faith in Christ to take you to heaven? which he immediately repeated, yes. But then he said, I fear that my words were vain. And so he went through a period of soul searching. And when he returned from America trying to convert the Indians when he himself was not converted, he went to a Moravian Bible study led on that place in London known as Aldersgate Street. And on May 24, 1738, he recorded these words, he said, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society meeting in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given to me that, had take, that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And of course, he went on to have a profound impact in both England and America through his preaching of the gospel. And because of that, slavery was abolished in both countries. Millions of people have been converted through their study of Romans or through a presentation of the gospel that largely included verses from the book of Romans, myself included. 
But don't ever forget that Romans was not written first and foremost to convert the lost. It was written to grow the saved. Paul in his introduction will write in verse 7 that this letter is to all who are beloved in God, of God in Rome, called as saints. This book will grow you up in the grace of God and it will certainly equip you to share the gospel more clearly and to answer difficult questions that people have. When I had been a Christian about two years, I attended a summer Bible institute and for six hours every day for one month and then followed by six hours of study, all we did was study the book of Romans, 12 hours a day. I felt like I was getting saved all over again because I grew deep in my relationship with Christ. And then I spent the next two years working through the book of Romans in my personal quiet times. And that was over 35 years ago that I had that first in-depth study of the book of Romans. But I'll never forget the transformation in growth and I never forget it every time I open it of what God can do in my life. So let's get started this morning. Whenever you come to a new book of the Bible, there are some basic questions you should ask, like who wrote the letter? To whom was it written? When was it written? Where was it written from? And what is its message? So as you can see there in the note-taking outline, let's address some of these questions. And they're really, for the most part, answered in the first four verses. Obviously, the human author is the Apostle Paul. He says in the opening verse, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. I received a long typewritten letter, and I couldn't tell from the outside of the letter who it was from, and so I flipped through the several pages, and then I saw the signature at the end, because it would give me some context. Who is this person writing to me? We tend to sign our letters at the end. They were much smarter than we. They usually put the signature right in the front end. And so Paul in the first line identifies himself as a human author writing under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. But the person who actually physically wrote the letter was a man by the name of Tertius. When you come to the end of the book in the 16th chapter, he will say, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. And then he adds, Gaius, host to me, and the whole church greets you. Now, if you knew Paul personally, you would know that he had a very distinctive penmanship. In fact, he indicates as such in 2 Thessalonians 3. And you would know this was not his writing. And so Tertius alerts us to the fact that he's the secretary. He's the amanuensis of this letter. And when we come to chapters 15 and 16, I hope to demonstrate conclusively to you that this letter was written on the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul while he was in the city of Corinth. But let me just briefly note here from the verse I just read that Paul is being housed by a man named Gaius. And Gaius is one of two men along with a fellow by the name of Stephanus whom Paul personally baptized when he was in the city of Corinth. Now as to the date of writing, in the first century they didn't inscribe the date on the top of a letter like we typically do. But if you compare Romans with the Acts of the Apostles, you discover that this book was, had to be written between November of 57 and February of 58 AD while Paul was there in the city of Corinth. Now what's the theme and the message of the letter? Well, it's given in Romans 1, 16 and 17. I told my wife that if I precede uh, her in death and if I... Uh, if the Lord doesn't come back in my lifetime, then I want Romans 1.16 written on my tombstone. It's my favorite verse in all of the Bible. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. But notice verse 17, for in it, in what? In the gospel. The subject in verse 16 is the gospel, is modified here in verse 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The theme of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God. The Apostle Paul is going to demonstrate how on the basis of faith, a righteous God can impart his righteousness, which is necessary to have a relationship with him and to be able to go to heaven. How a righteous God can impart his righteousness to unrighteous sinners to the work of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God, it is the heart and soul of this great letter. And the rest of the book is going to amplify these verses given in the introduction. And I would say that there is no other book in all of the New Testament that amplifies the doctrine of salvation more than the book of Romans. It is filled with doctrine. Oh, the doctrine. That's what you give to sick people. <laughs> well, this is something you give to sick people because the 21st century church is sick. The word doctrine, didaskalos, we get our English word didactic from it. A didactic is when you try to teach someone something, a means for teaching. The word doctrine just means teaching. And one of the sad realities of our day is the church is biblically illiterate and doctrinally idiotic. But sound doctrine is to be taught. The Bible says that the church of the living God is the pillar and the support of the truth. And some churches, unfortunately, don't want to be offensive, and so they don't uphold the truth. And when they fail to uphold the truth, they really cease to be the church. You cannot be politically correct and function as a church. God doesn't call us to be politically correct. He calls us to be biblically correct. And if you're trying to please men by always walking in the center of the road, you'll just become in the end roadkill. But God warns the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And may I say, ladies and gentlemen, those days have arrived. But the antidote to a lack of sound doctrine given to Timothy is simply preach the word. Nothing less, nothing more, nothing else. He gives the same counsel to Titus. Speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And sound doctrine is important. Doctrine is important because if you want to know what God is like, doctrine is a reflection of his character. And when you properly apply it, it will change your life. I know we live in a day when people come to church, they want to be entertained, they want to have their ears tickled, and it is any wonder that their lives and families are so messed up. And so Paul practices what he preaches here in the book of Romans. Paul is going to teach us about how God views the lost, how God saves sinners, how God grows sinners. He's going to teach us something about assurance of salvation, of our eternal security. He's going to explain the relationship between Old Testament saints with New Testament saints. He's going to unfold for us different ministries of God the Holy Spirit and God's plan for both Jews and Gentiles. He's going to say something about the subject of spiritual gifts and the belief 
believer's relationship to the government. He's going to teach us how to be discerning in those areas that are not specifically addressed in the Word of God. Sound doctrine will always result in sound living. The word sound actually is a Greek word that we get our word healthy from. He's talking about healthy doctrine that produces a healthy life. So we've talked about who wrote the letter, to whom was it written, the church at Rome, when, well, 57 to 58 AD, where from Corinth, what is the message, the righteousness of God is seen in the gospel. With that said, let's try to get an overview of the book. I've told you many times before, if you can get a big, the big picture of the book, the parts will take on that much more meaning. And if you will read and reread the letter several times, you're going to see very plainly that there are three major sections to the book of Romans. And by the way, I want you to really learn Romans. I hope by the time we're done a year from now, you not only have this outline memorized, and if this is not an outline that works for you, make up your own. This is just my outline. Make up your own. Whatever words will help you to grasp the, what, what's clearly found in these three sections, use them. But I hope by the time we're done, you will be able to think your way chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, through the whole book of Romans. Now, in section one, it's found in the first eight chapters, it is a picture of God's righteousness revealed. Remember, we said the theme of this book is the righteousness of God. And so, in one word, chapters one through eight is the doctrinal section. And the Apostle Paul is going to function or major on three major doctrines concerning the righteousness of God. He's going to deal first with the doctrine of condemnation. He's going to show how every man is guilty before God. That no one can claim innocence before God because no one can claim ignorance about God. And therefore, each and every man is worthy of the wrath of God. Then he will move from the doctrine of condemnation to the doctrine of justification beginning in chapters 3, 4, and 5. And he will explain how God can take unworthy sinners deserving of his wrath and give them a new standing such that they are deemed holy ones in his sight. And then in chapters 6 through 8, he will deal with the doctrine of sanctification. He will show how the cross saves us not simply from the uh, penalty of sin, but how the cross can save us from the power of sin. By the time he's done, you will not be able to use the prevalent mentality of victimization and thus deny the doctrine of sanctification. God wants to make you in your person what he has declared you to be in your position. Now we come to the second section of the book of Romans when you come to chapter 9. And that section deals with God's righteousness vindicated. God's righteousness vindicated. Most of you know the end of chapter 8 because it's a very commonly recited section of scripture. How nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. But when you step into the ninth chapter, there's a sad description of the nation of Israel who is in rebellion and unbelief. Well, the obvious question is, if nothing can separate us from the love of God, and if, as the Old Testament teaches, that God loved Israel with an everlasting love, and if God made some promises to Israel that are unconditional in nature, then how do you deal with the fact that God has rejected his people Israel? 
And in these three chapters, Paul will vindicate God's righteousness by showing it is not God who rejected Israel, but Israel who rejected God. But in spite of their rejection, God will still love them and keep his promises to them. Now, 9, 10, and 11 have been very confusing passages to some people because there are some in the history of the church who have denied God's plan for Israel. And so they say the church is the new Israel. And so when they come to 9, 10, and 11, they read it through that lens. But the theme in one word of 9, 10, and 11 is Israel. And so I call this section the national section. In chapter 9, you have Israel's election. In chapter 10, you have the reason for Israel's rejection. And in chapter 11, you have their future restoration. 1 through 8 is doctrinal. 9 through 11 is national. A brand new section opens up to us in chapter 12 when you read the word therefore. In light of all the truth that he has taught in chapters 1 through 11, he then applies God's righteousness. And so the theme of the final section of the book is God's righteousness applied. And in this section, he's going to deal again with three major areas in turn. He'll deal with the subject of spiritual gifts. He'll deal with our relationship to the government. And then he will deal with the area that we refer to as gray areas. He will give us some principles for discernment as it relates to doubtful things or those things that are not specifically spoken about in the Word of God. And so in one word, this is the practical or you might say the applicational section. Three sections, each in turn dividing into three sections. The first section is doctrinal, God's righteousness revealed, where he deals with condemnation, justification, sanctification. 9 through 11 is God's righteousness vindicated. It's the national section where he deals with Israel's election, her rejection, and her future restoration. And then the final section is practical. It's God's righteousness applied, where he focuses largely on gifts, governments, and gray areas. Now, if you haven't read Romans lately, go home, read it this week. Only take you about 25 minutes. Now, the Apostle Paul was a great preacher because between his introduction and his conclusion, he gives his sermon. And really, those are the marks of a great sermon. You, you have an intro, typically three points, and your conclusion, and Paul does exactly that. First, in the introduction, he tells you where, what it is that he's going to tell them. And then in the body of his sermon or his letter, he, he tells them what it is that he's going to tell them. And then in the conclusion, he tells them what he told them. And that's exactly what he does. All right, now, we're going to look at just the first four verses today. And you can see on your outline there, I've entitled the message, The World's Greatest Christian. Many people, myself included, think that the Apostle Paul was the greatest follower, the greatest Christian this world has ever known. But I want you to see that there are three dimensions to his greatness. Three things that made him great. Number one, Paul had a master. Number two, Paul had a mission. And number three, Paul had a message. So let's first think about the fact that Paul had a master. Notice how he describes himself in the opening verse. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He calls himself a bondservant, which is another word for slave. 
as the great apostle, he calls himself a doulos because as Christ's slave, he viewed himself as the Lord's property. Now, this would be a very meaningful world if, word if you lived in the first century world because some 60 million people many of whom were believers, lived in slavery under the Roman Empire. But the slavery that Paul is going to reference this morning is not an involuntary slavery, but a voluntary slavery. In fact, there's a beautiful word picture in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for this word that's translated slave or bond slave. It's found in the book of Deuteronomy. Understand that the slavery that was under Israel was not like the slavery we had in America some 150 years ago that was an abomination to God. It was just and humane and in many ways replaced the current day prison system that we have. But in Deuteronomy 15, Moses wrote these words. If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, then he shall serve you six years, but in the seventh year you shall set him free. When you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally from your flock and from your threshing floor and from your wine vat. You shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. I, it shall come about if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he fares well with you. In the parallel text in Exodus, it puts it this way. If the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Under these circumstances, Moses says, then... You shall take an awl and pierce it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your servant forever. Not by compulsion, but by choice. He shall be your servant. And it's the identical word doulos translated in Romans 1.1. 1, 1. As a sign and symbol of his choice, he would have his ear there at the doorposts with a hole made in it through an awl. So it's not by accident that Paul will write to the church at Galatia, I bear in my body the brand marks, the stigmata, the, the bond slave brands of Jesus Christ. Nobody was more conscious of freedom than probably someone like Paul. And as you read his epistles in the Acts, it is clear that he valued his Roman citizenship. It was a high privilege to be a free man in the Roman Empire. Yet Paul says, I am a slave. I am a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Why? Because he realizes, he said to the Corinthians, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. This man who was once a Christ hater loved Christ with all his heart and offered himself as a bond slave because of the one who had given himself, who had bought him with his own precious blood. And by the time we are finished, Paul and our spiritual hearts are going to invite us to the doorpost to have it all put through our ear. Paul was a doulos, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He knew the powerful transformation found in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And as Dr. Brogy has noted, prayerfully by the end of our study, those listening who've not yet experienced that transforming power will come to know the Savior in a very special manner. 
To listen again to today's message, The Introduction to Romans, visit our website at searchthescriptures.org and search for program ROM1 entitled The Greatest Christian. You can also listen to this or any of the messages in the Romans series at our Search the Scriptures app, available through the iTunes Store or the Android Marketplace. Or simply call us at 877-787-7478. Because of the upsurge in COVID cases, the Search the Scriptures trip to Israel, originally scheduled for October of this year, has been moved to May of 2022. If you missed out on registering but are still interested, you have until February to commit. Get all the details online at searchthescriptures.org. Tomorrow we continue our introduction to the greatest Christian. Join us then as we search the scriptures. Mm -hmm.